0: hi the name's colin welcome to Callcast, episode 12. sorry for being a day late or maybe two days later or something like that i wish i had an excuse but i don't so let's get into it okay so first off dude <laughs> i don't know if i should just tell you the good news or if i should explain let me explain i'll explain first so i went to film school in 2014, I started September, September 3rd, no, it was like August 23rd, something like that. I go to film school with a buddy of mine, Tristan Malu from Washington, I'm from Oregon. We drove to Michigan to go to film school. The plan was to do one year, he did the one year, but it's not one year, it's two years in one. <clears throat> two years, like a man. Two years... In one. So it's 24 credit semesters. I've probably talked about this on a podcast already. But if you're new here, this is for Yale. We wrapped the one year up. It's three semesters. You go... We went year round. So of the, the summers of 2015 and 16, I was in I was in school. 24 credit semesters for that first, you know, two years wrapped into one. 1,500 hours spent on film sets outside of class. So that excludes class time homework and uh and all that we wrap the one year up my buddy Tristan goes back to Washington I decide to stay now I decided to stay mostly because of the friends and the social circle that I had created there first of all there's just something about college friends that is so special plus it was kind of a trade school we're all there for film So it's not like you have different minors and majors that you're going to. We're all headed in the same direction, and that's what made it so special for me. I felt like I found my tribe, where honestly I feel like a lot of people who attended that school have some form of autism or Asperger's. I don't say that with a negative connotation, I mean that it felt comfortable for me, because I too have been diagnosed with something, you know, similar. And I actually do need to go again because I was 16 at the time. Now I'm 27. My brain is fully developed, so I think it would be important to go. I think it would also be helpful for jobs to know if I ever have to get a job again. It would be helpful for them to understand these things because treating every employee like every employee is just not going to work. Some people have learning disabilities. Some people have real, a real hard time with uh, communication. And communication is a big area that I lack. So anyways, I took out probably, oh yeah, I'm sitting for this episode, by the way. <laughs> I took out, I think it was like $5,000 per semester that I did there. And that was eight semesters, including the internship. So really nine. That's probably a lot of money. And to get like $5,000 at the beginning of a semester it looked like I'm <laughs> Little did I know that it needed to last me the whole semester, but more often than not, I'd find myself mid-semester completely broke. I would spend so unnecessarily. So, I exited Compass College of Cinematic Arts with over $100,000 in debt. That includes a payment for the school, that includes the payments that I took out for living. So that right there is 20 plus years of paying that off. Maybe a lifetime, actually depending on how assertive and goal-oriented I was in paying that off. And it's even worse if you try to avoid it or defer them. So I was deferring them for a long time because I just didn't have any way to pay them back. I was working kitchen jobs. Wells Fargo would try and go after my parents to see if they could pay it, and it was just kind of a mess there for a little bit. 2017-2018 was extremely stressful. With ending school, knowing student loans are going to start... I have two degrees in film, and associate's, and a bachelor's, and I'm working, I'm salting fries and flipping burgers. My student loans for a while, for the past couple years, have been this mountain that I have turned a blind eye to. I have not really even allowed myself to think about them. During the pandemic, some of them were deferred for about a year, and and that was uh, really a Superb relief to find out. Because I was laid off or without a job for most of the... No. No, I I had a job for quite a bit of the pandemic. But still, student loans were not a priority to me. It was just like, uh, student loans were just this backpack that I'm going to be carrying on this journey forever. And I just kind of accepted that fact. But, out of nowhere... I get this letter in the mail. Usually, if I get Wells Fargo, I just spit. If I get Wells Fargo mail, I will either open it and shred it immediately or just go right to shredding it. Like, I don't need to see this. I can just find it out online or whatever. So it was like May 28th. They sent me this letter. I think I got it early June. But I I didn't shred it. I, I don't know why. I didn't even open it. I just... Set it aside, this Wells Fargo letter. I was like, whatever, I'm, you guys are not important to me. <laughs> so, I'm eating breakfast one morning a week and a half ago or something like that. And the letter is sitting there on the table and I go, fine, I'll open it. What, what do you have to tell me? I open it. Let me read it to you. Says, dear Colin T. Everett, we wanted to let you know that due to the age of your debt, we will no longer attempt to collect from you. Which, due to the age of your debt, made me think collections. But I'm not sure that that's what this is. It doesn't give me any indication that they sent me to collections. Which, if they did, that would have been, I mean, just a massive. I don't. I don't know. I don't. Okay. So, anyways. Therefore, Wells Fargo considers your Wells Fargo Educational Financial Services loan and again blah 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 closed and you are not required to make any additional payments on said loan. What? I almost choked on my breakfast. What you need to know. We will not attempt to collect this debt from you. We will not accept any additional payments on this loan. Any payments we receive after the date of this letter will be returned to you at your address above. Am I showing you my address? (laughs) Maybe. We have notified the consumer reporting agencies to update the balance amount for this account to zero. That's my balance, is zero. Now, I have student loans from a couple different places, like federal loans, a private loan, and then this. I know, I was so smart. But this, by far, was the biggest one. And it was like 70 grand. That they just forgave. They're just like, meh. We don't need it from you. Uh. Now, I did hear that Biden had something to do with this, which is funny because I feel like it's maybe an attempt to uh, get some followers for the next election. But I don't know, because he's been talking about this forever. You know, since he since he was elected, he's been talking about since before he was elected student loans. He's been talking about eradicating them or, or um, reducing them. And it's kind of absurd. I don't I don't believe it yet I still feel like there's some repercussions or some sort of collection agency or something but they don't indicate that so I don't they said it's been reduced to zero I want to believe them seriously that is one of the most exciting things that I have ever encountered is my student loans the years that I would have been paying were reduced from 20 plus to maybe 5 like <laughs> I don't even... Uh, I'm framing that. I'm framing that. But yeah, anyways, I had to share that absolute excitement because... Uh, well, it's exciting. So, and since school, I have really regretted how I spent the money. And I've really been hard on myself. There's a fly in my room. And now this news just alleviates me from... From despising Colin in his early 20s. And how ignorant that dude was. You know, I don't know if it can be reversed at some point. I don't know. I really hope not. But anyways, that is that bit of news. So, on to the next topic. I wanted to talk about Chris Farley. And for those of you that don't know, uh, Chris Farley was a comedian. He was doing improv at Second City in Chicago. And got recruited to be on SNL, Saturday Night Live. I think it would have been late 80s. And then early 90s, he was fired from SNL. And I'm not sure if he was fired before Tommy Boy and some of his bigger movies. Because those movies are like SNL productions. So, I don't know. Maybe they fired him and hired him for a couple movies. I don't know. I don't remember. But Chris Farley is the, com- the comedian that I have the most resemblance to. And I love that. And I actually think that... Losing weight would would remove my resemblance to him, which is kind of a bummer. And it's not that I even find him always laugh out loud funny, mostly because I've seen just about every bit of footage that exists of him multiple times over. But I love Chris Farley for the reasons he did comedy, as well as the darkness that he had inside of him I have total compassion for his struggle with his darkness for example he went to rehab 17 times I think Lorne Michaels at Saturday Night Live they sent him to rehab 17 times I mean 17 that is just outrageous like, he is clearly not going to be getting a handle on his drug addiction or alcohol addiction if it's 17 times. And I feel bad for his friends at SNL who watched him, watched his demise, because what can, what could they have done? Seriously, yeah. Like, I guess I resented them for a little bit, Adam Sandler, David Spade, Rob Schneider, but what could they have done? They can't bound him. They can't trap him into a, a drugless room. I mean, it's Chris Farley is one of the saddest cases I've ever heard. And his reasons for doing comedy was out of total insecurity. I'm going to make you laugh so you don't make fun of me. I'm going to make fun of myself first so you don't. And he really didn't find himself funny. That's, that's the kicker for me. Is that he would always want to be just like John Belushi. He wanted to be just like him. And, and sadly, he did die at the same age as John Belushi, who was on SNL uh, a couple decades before him. And, I mean, John Belushi was Chris Farley's Jesus. And Chris Farley, unfortunately, followed his route of life to a T. There's a book, The Chris Farley Show, written by his brothers, as well as anybody who knew him at SNL. The whole book is, it's an incredible book, I still have it. The whole book is just stories and paragraphs about Chris. And it's such a beautiful book. You got Bob Odenkirk in there, Spade, Sandler Schneider, and that one other person, you know... But their detailing of his life, his personal life, is just tragic. He was sober, totally sober for Tommy Boy, which I love him for. I love that he was sober for Tommy Boy. He had to be contractually. So at the end of Chris Farley's life, he was offered a role to play Fatty Arbuckle. If you don't know who that is, Fatty Arbuckle started back in the 1920s and 30s and 40s. Maybe not the 40s, I don't know. No, I think he was. I think he was still trying to come back from what happened. There was a woman who accused him of sexual assault, but it was a lie. Even after it came out that it w- that it was a lie, his career was absolutely ruined. Fatty Arbuckle was kind of like the founding father of physical comedy. He brought up Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton. Like, he was the guy doing, doing physical comedy in the silent film era before those two. And his career was absolutely demolished by this one accusation that wasn't even true. So, Chris Farley was offered a role to play Fatty Arbuckle in the story of his life. But, there was a, a requirement that he had to be sober for two years before he got to play that role. Okay. I do not agree with that whatsoever. Be sober for two years before... No, just make him be sober for the movie. Just like Tommy Boy. Just make him be sober for that movie. That's it. That's all they needed to do. And because of how badly Chris Farley wanted to play Fatty Arbuckle, he was devastated by the two years of sobriety that he would have to have. Understandably, I can imagine that a drug addict looking at two years of sobriety is a is a mountain. So after Chris Farley was offered that, instead of getting sober for those two years, what ended up happening was Chris Farley went on a three day bender where he didn't sleep. He went to bars, strip clubs, he had parties at his place, and he was not he, he didn't sleep at all. He had so many different drugs in his system that eventually at the end of the three-day bender he tried i this is something that i heard he tried snorting his name in cocaine but it was i think actually an eight ball which is more than cocaine that's like several drugs mixed in he was with a hooker a lady of the night and his body started shutting down as he was alive he collapsed and his last words were please don't leave me to the to the woman and she left she left him as he was dying he, he collapsed and he was you know pleading with her and, and she left needless to say i absolutely despise that woman if she had acted she could have saved his life she could have if the police had got there on time pumped out his stomach you know anything could have could have saved his life There are even uh, images online of his his death, of the scene where he's, you know, he's foaming at the mouth and it's incredibly tragic. 33 years old. Who dies at 33, dude? I think he would be mid-50s right now, kind of like Sandler and Spade. And I can't even imagine Chris Farley in his 50s, still making movies and making us laugh. I can't even picture it. But I absolutely love Chris Farley for so much more than just his comedy. I think mostly what I feel for Farley is absolute compassion for his struggle. He details in his book, uh, The Chris Farley Show, there's a quote of his that says, um, The first time you try heroin, it, it captures your soul. It takes your soul hostage or something like that. and I believe it. I believe that the first time you try heroin I've never ever, ever done it, never planned on it, but you are not in control of the addiction at that point. and that is so terrifying. but he was he was one of the most incredible acrobats I've ever seen in my life, and he was 300 pounds. The dude was so athletic. Yeah, I love Chris Farley, dude. And there's never going to be anybody else like him. People compare me to him all the time, but I will never live up to what Chris Farley was. But yeah, anyways, I just had to share my thoughts about Chris Farley to you guys. As you guys know, I am such a fan of physical comedy. And I love that it's not just restricted to fat guys either. Because, I mean, look at Jim Carrey, Chevy Chase, Dick Van Dyke. Just absolute masters at physical comedy. Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton, obviously. Chris Farley, Kevin James, even Jack Black. But physical, facial comedy is just... (laughs) It resonates so deeply with me. And that's not all the comedy that I like to absorb. I also love British comedy that's very dry. But even, like, Looney Tunes and Tom and Jerry, there's so much physical comedy that occurs in those cartoons... Mel Blank, who was the, you know, the, the powerhouse behind Looney Tunes, he would say to his, his uh, creators, his artists, do not draw the same face twice. Every face, every expression needs to be different. And I love that so much. A lot of my humor comes from Looney Tunes and, and Tom and Jerry, those cartoons, Disney, early Disney stuff. And that is definitely a lot of the comedy that I try to produce is physical. Comedy hurts is my motto. That's been my motto for a long time, ever since I started my first YouTube channel, which is the one that I have now. Uh, but I used to I used to put comedy hurts with a logo at the at the beginning of my videos. And to me, that's actually a, a relatively deep saying. Like comedy hurts, like physical comedy hurts. I've definitely hurt myself doing physical comedy. But, also, what that means is comedy hurts. To choose a life of comedy is painful for the for the comedian. Because there's a whole world behind the scenes that you have to keep to yourself. It's not comedy. Chris Farley's drug addiction wasn't funny. And he would have never let the public know about that. I'm sure they kept it under wraps. And some of the best physical comedy stunts that I've ever done have not been captured on film, which is so unfortunate. But there was one time that I was performing stand-up comedy, and I consciously thought before I went up there, I'm going to grab that bar stool, put it in front of the mic, sit on it, start telling a joke, and then at some point, I'll just fall off of it. So, I get up there, get on the stool, start telling my joke. In the middle of the joke, I just lean back and fall off of it. I landed on my shoulder blade and I hear this right on my shoulder blade. And I I pop up and I, I keep telling the joke because that's the joke to me. is not that I fell, but it's the fact that I get up and keep telling the joke like nothing happened. But I was in such excruciating pain I just bit the crap out of my lip. Which, that hurt more actually now. Such, such pain. <laughs> and I just... <laughs> I had to pretend like nothing happened. I just wish that would have been captured on film. But yeah. You guys know. You know, if you're here watching my stuff, you've you've seen me do physical comedy before. So, kind of switching subjects a little bit. There's this one time that I was traveling, and it makes me cringe so much to think about what I put these people through. <laughs> First off, never travel in sweatpants. Planes, trains, just don't do it. I made the incredible mistake of traveling in sweatpants because I thought it would be comfortable. So I think I had taken two planes and now I'm getting onto a train. It's about three or four hours of a, you know, ride. And then I had to get in a car and drive like 45 minutes. My buddy was picking me up. So the two planes, I knew that I had been traveling for over half a day and that I had gotten warm and sweaty in these sweatpants, but this time I was getting on a train. I sit next to this pretty cute girl, actually, and I just go to sleep. I slept most of the train ride. I think I woke up within the last half hour of the ride. (laughs) I wake up and I can tell I am so sweaty. And in my peripheral, I notice the girl next to me so like I'm her I'm I'm sitting right here and I'm right here. She, well what? What? She's right here where I am and I'm right there where she No. Anyways, she is doing this with her shirt. <laughs> like completely covering her nose and she keeps readjusting it. Like <laughs> And I see that in my peripheral and I go, oh, I think I probably stink i think i really stink right now we i mean she has her full back turned to me she is like covering her nose she's trying so hard to escape the stench and we end the ride we all stand up i turn around and i get death glares from people like there's this one 15 year old kid who was just staring me down (laughs) was so mad I just remember their faces staring me down and I was like oh man I think I probably stunk up this whole cab dude (laughs) which I couldn't escape it how could I have I just didn't know sweatpants would trap so much heat and cause me to sweat I hadn't changed my clothes that was horrible luckily I think this was from the divine. My buddy who came and picked me up had one of the worst stuffy noses. (laughs) He had such a cold that he couldn't even... I mean, I was talking like this and he couldn't even smell anything. I was like, (laughs) thank you, Lord! Because that would have been incredibly embarrassing. I get to my buddy's house, who I was living with at the time. It's him his girlfriend and his brother. And I walk up. I hug Kiowa. And I can tell immediately he smells everything. Like, he he's using his shirt to, like, <laughs> do this. And he's like, <sighs> you know, like, w- wafting, wafting the smell. And I went and changed immediately. But still, that whole story just sticks out in my mind with uh, everything I put them through. Traveling is not fun, dude. I don't enjoy traveling. I find it incredibly uncomfortable. I just don't like being out of control. I don't have any control over the situation. But, yeah, anyways, I don't know. That's a small little story. I just needed to get off my boobies. Um, I guess I'll end this podcast with talking about Oklahoma. If you guys don't know the uh, play Oklahoma, like Hugh Jackman, before he was Wolverine, he toured as the main character in the play Oklahoma so this was 2010 I was 16 I think and here in Salem Oregon there's a skit theater which is skit is like a acronym you know S-K-I-T everything stands for something I remember the audition was beautiful I made everybody laugh it was so funny and I had taken classes and so the the director of the play was familiar with me and she came up to me after the audition and she goes I love that everybody got to see how funny you are and I was like yeah yeah me too so she cast me as this character called Ali Hakim or Ali Hakam, as they say in the play with the accent from Oglama so I'm playing an Arabic guy oh and this was the hat I used this was the hat that I used during the play for Ali Hakim <laughs> And I wouldn't talk like this. I didn't really know like what accent to use or whatever. So I would just, it was sort of Indian, sort of Arabic. Aloha Akbar! Okay, that's inappropriate. So I was cast in this play, dude, with a bunch of other high schoolers who were a little bit older, a little bit younger than me. And I can honestly attribute those three or four months to the happiest months of my life. I sobbed when the play was done. When we were doing our final bows and the director came on and we gave her flowers. I had to walk off stage, I was bawling. I I don't do well with things that I love ending, like summer camp. When summer camp ends, I fall into such a summer camp like post summer camp depression, and this was exactly that. I uh I hated that it was over because I got so much attention. My attention-seeking quota was filled to the brim for those months. I was one of the main characters. I had a, I had a couple songs, and I did a lot of improvising, so I would deviate from the script. And I would do that purposefully just to make other cast members laugh on stage, <laughs> which they were not supposed to. But I remember being able to do that because I had the script memorized perfectly. The, dire- the director came up to me one time... She goes, um, I don't remember why she asked me, but she goes, what page do you say this line on? And I go, 72. And she looks and she goes, okay, what page do you say this other line on? And I go, page 43. And she turns to it and she goes, you're sick. (laughs) Okay, that just fell. But I knew the script inside and out. I knew everybody's lines, dude. So I was able to just like... (laughs) Do this in and out of uh, improv, going back to the script and making people laugh. After one of the performances, the director came up to me and said, "Okay, stop improvising. You have reached your limit. You've done enough improvising. You have to stick to the script." (laughs) It's like, okay, if you say so. And and the friends that I made are still my friends today. I just remember making them laugh, even on stage, and that was that was the biggest achievement. But I had to tell you guys about Oklahoma because, you know, a lot of people have their, like, high school days, their high school sports days and stuff, but mine was this play. This play was just such a, a beautiful time for me. There is a video of, of one of my songs that you can find on my YouTube channel. I did a reaction video to it. But I have the red hat, the whole dress up, and I'm singing this song. Uh, It's a scandal. It's an outrage. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, that was pretty much the podcast that I had written out to share with you guys. And now I really have to go poop. So I'm probably going to end this. But uh, sorry for being late again. I will try not to do that anymore. I love you guys so much. Thank you for listening. And I'll catch you guys next Monday. Peace.